Yeah. <laughs> Columbo. Columbo. Very good, Eric. Very good. Oh, God. He's a classic. Nothing like uh, the original art detective, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So today we've got quite a story going for us. Um, you're going to tell us about Don Prychik? I can. Harisic. Harisic. Don Harisic. Yeah. Um, yeah. He kind of looks like. Richard Widmark from, uh, I don't know if you remember the actor, Richard Widmark is he, a dead ringer for him. Um, the guy started out like in the, let's say early eighties, LAPD. I think he was raised in Long Beach, but he ends up in the 77th division, uh, the precinct downtown. And back in those days, Oh, there he is. Yeah. kind of looks like, I wish we had a picture of Richard Widmark cause he looks just like him, but he ends up in the 77th division um, where there is a thousand murders a year, which is about three or four times more than we have today, um, even though everything's going kablooey here. So he goes to work and literally he has to see like three to six dead bodies a week and just on the job. And it's, yeah, no, I mean, it, it was crazy. It was really weird. Like I never really thought of it that way. But um, he he has to process all these murders and, you know, at a thousand a year, you know, 50 weeks. I mean, do the math of what, you know, that's not all in his division, obviously. But, you know, uh, that was one of the heavier crime divisions in L.A. So he says, I got to get out of here. I got to transfer out. I got to do something. He's got like like what I assume be like PTSD today, you know, as a, as a detective dealing with all this crime. And uh, I think it was around 1986, there's a crime out in Van Nuys, um, a murder that appears to be a robbery in a two-story condo in Van Nuys. And it is a wreck of an apartment. The place is completely disheveled. And the woman who is in there, um, a six-foot-tall, 29-year-old nursing executive named Sherry Rasmussen, is killed with three 38 caliber bullet holes shot into her through a blanket that apparently was used to muffle the sound of the murder. And the place is wrecked. Detectives show up and apparently there had been another burglary by two short Latino guys earlier in the week. And they assume it's the same two Latino guys even though nothing's really stolen, Eric, except her BMW, which is in the garage. So the BMW is stolen. Um, <laughs> and she's married to an engineer named John Rutten. He's not home. And they figure, well, maybe it's him. So they grill him. And he it's obviously not him. He was at work all day as an engineer. So he's got an alibi. This was done in the morning. And there's blood everywhere. Um, there's some... DNA. She has on the inside of her right arm, a very deep, savage bite mark where you can, you know, one of those where you can actually see the teeth, Eric, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. the forensics people come in and 
you know, they do fingerprinting and they take some blood samples and they also uh, take saliva from the bite mark uh, and they and they put it in, in a test tube. Now, DNA does not exist yet. I mean, keep this in mind. This is not OJ time. This is before OJ. This is 1986. Right. right. So there is no DNA. It's just coming on the scene in England at that time. Um, in fact, a year or two later, some criminalists will use it in England. Crazy. But the reality of it is the crime goes unsolved. And it's just one of many murders uh, I believe in 86, it was 836 murders. And the crime in Van Nuys is just linked to these two Latino guys um, who are never apprehended. And neither is the murderer of this woman. Um, so the parents live in Tucson, Arizona, and they keep contacting the cops to try to get a lead on their daughter's murder. And she's um, really beloved. She went to UCLA when she was only 16 years of age. Beautiful. Uh, looks like a, an all-star volleyball player. Uh, but anyway, Harisic, having nothing to do with this murder per, per se, it's just right, symbolic right. Of, of that era, develops and gets into something called the art theft detail, which he creates for himself as an art detective. And yeah, here he is. Um, as the first and only urban art detective squad in the country. And it's a one-man unit called Art Theft Detail uh, out of LAPD. He's the only guy, and he's not a trained art person at all, but he becomes like Columbo and has to solve all of these high-end art crimes that are going on in Los Angeles, and art forgery, by the way. Not just art crimes, art forgery. You know, and a lot of these are in Bel Air. They're in Beverly Hills. Um, here's, yeah, look, I guess this is a couple that he that he got back. And he has an incredible record of solving these insane crimes uh, by just being a, a complete dog of war and a Columbo type who um, gets inside these homes and finds out that the butler did it, the maid did it. There's all, all different kinds of, storylines involved in these crimes of uh the art detective almost old-fashioned old what's that almost old-fashioned old fashioned. yeah no he does it really old-fashioned in fact one of the one of the crimes that he uh solves actually two of them were like this uh one of them was a butler who was from sweden and retires after 15 years and he's going to go back to sweden with his wife who is the cook and it turns out his wife is not the cook uh, but his lover, who's also Swedish, I don't know what that had to do with the story, but he has taken these Chagalls or these Picassos, I forget which, and he goes to a high-end Hollywood uh, photography house, not a, not, a, not a commercial photography house, an industrial photography house, and he pays them to shoot copies of the painting with high-tech cameras. And he goes back like six to eight times. It takes months and they're off by a millimeter. They're off by a micron. It's a little too fuzzy. And he ends up reprinting the photographs of the art, takes the art out and replaces it with photographs and keeps going back to Sweden and going to this auction house and selling them for millions of dollars, returning to Bel Air and then doing it again. And this takes, of course, over the course of a year and the woman, the older woman who looks at the painting, 
she touches it one day and it, she realizes it doesn't feel like an oil painting, Eric. It just feels like something from Kinko's, you know, a laser copy. So they've got to call the art detective, which is Don Harisic, who has to show up and solve that crime. And he solves it. He finds out it's this guy from Sweden. He gets the guy extradited from Sweden and he's arrested at the airport. He was actually flying on the plane with the paintings rolled up in a, in a cylinder, taking them physically to Sweden and then meeting with the um, uh, Swedish art directors from the from the auction house uh, who were paying him and then they would auction it off. So the government of Sweden gave us a lot of crap about not giving back the paintings, but eventually they had to turn them over. Wow, it sounds completely crazy. I'm going to pull this down for a second and mute you. I'm echoing through your mic, so let me mute and unmute, see if that takes care of it. Okay. okay. I think when I was looking around for you, I found some other um, interesting cases. Uh, what was it? This one here. Oh yeah, that's the that's the first um, Superman action comic, and there's also number thirty-seven in Detective Comics. This is actually I used to collect Superman comics. Yeah, this is the um, this was owned by Nicholas Cage in in a uh, Beverly Hills, and Nicholas Cage had a collection. Obviously, he had some connection to Batman or Superman or some movie. Sure, but he uh, had a collection of these these uh, early editions that were worth, you know, some of them were worth three hundred thousand dollars. And he what he had was they were mounted in boxes with glass on the wall in his studio, and they had like a lock on them, a key lock, and they were all around the walls of his studio. And one of them was the uh, Detective Comics number one, and I think Detective Comics number thirty. 37 um, or 27, which was the first Batman uh, detective comics. Uh, but anyway, these are worth a fortune. And he has a New Year's Eve party where there's 300 people of various walks of life because it's Hollywood. And the next morning when the dust settles, he realizes that the cases have been emptied of all these different individual comics and uh, has to call the art detective. Don Harisic, <laughs> who has to, so and so and so Colombo, and so Harisic has to go up to to Nicholas Cage's house and find all three hundred of these people and interview all these weirdos who are at his party, which which is really insane. And it turns out that um, he kept the key to the lock right in his desk drawer in the same room. So all they had to do was open the top drawer. And there was the key to the locks to all the, which is what they did uh, to steal the comics. It wasn't that difficult, but he did get these returned. Um, Harisig is one of the cases he solved. Yeah. Interesting. It wasn't um, just that. Uh, what was it? He, you know, I, you think art and you don't realize that it could be, you know, people like the, you know, the comic book, obviously, but it also, um, you had these prints that were stolen. Oh, yeah. Yep. Uh, these yeah, are actually animation, guess, animation you know, cells were stolen. Yeah. The animation cells. Uh, yeah. I think you're referring to, right? Or yeah, sorry. Yeah. Right. Animation oh, yeah. cells. Animation super cells, valuable. Yeah. And rare. Right. And th those were stolen on a couple of occasions. Um, one was from a production company, another one was from Disney itself. Um, but I think that was the peanut stuff, the Charles Schultz mm -hmm. ones, right? Yeah. Yes. So he got, he got those returned. I mean, some of these cases are really strange art. 
there was a bronze statue i recall um at um like Wilsh, I want to say Olympic and Kenmore, right over there. Um, and it was a, it was a miner. It was a statue, a bronze statue of a miner panning gold. And they came in the middle of the night with a with a buzz saw and cut it off at the legs. <laughs> Just the base was left. Oh my so God. they went. It was ridiculous. It was like an eight foot tall bronze. It was there for decades. Bronze statue, like a, a, a 49er coming to pan for gold, Eric. You know, and it was like on this little square, a little island. And one morning, people realized it was missing. And it turns out that the art detective had to go to all these different metal uh, surplus houses. And in fact, these two Mexican gardeners, uh, Mexican American, or maybe who knows, um, eight, uh, uh, gardeners had taken it with a buzz saw. And cut the legs off and taken it to this, uh, 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 you know, metal place and sold it for the weight of the bronze. And so that was returned. And then they soldered it or welded the legs back together. You could still see a line around. it. I remember going over there years ago. You could still see the base had been separated a little bit. Crazy. And um, people might recognize this guy. Is this one of the Warhols? Yep, uh, the he did the Endangered series, and these were stolen from the studio, if I recall. Right. I don't know who stole these. I don't. I forget who the the criminal was. But the one thing I learned from the guy was that almost ninety percent of these are inside jobs. They're, yeah. they're not guys with grappling hooks coming in the swinging in like uh, some movies we might have seen. You know what I mean? These are usually guys who are the driver or the custodian or some guy on the inside, um, you know, uh, who has access to the paintings and, and here's, here's Warhol himself. The, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it makes sense. I, I think a lot of robberies, um, are that way. And, uh, one of the last ones that I had pulled, um, this is similar to your photocopy story. Ah, she was um, literally a professor, or she worked at uh, UCLA and had those like repaired and redone and essentially made forgeries. So right. the forgery back and the real yeah. one out. That's a common move. I learned <laughs> that's a very common move because it, it buys you time, Eric, you know, to, to sell it, move it out, go, you know, do whatever you got to do. Instead of leaving an empty frame there, which I think they would come after you pretty quickly. So, yeah, especially with the advent of Kinko's and laser copiers in the 90s, I think it takes off in terms of laser copies more than anything else. And but had, was that, where is that, the, from the museum at UCLA? That was, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And what's funny is the, um, well, back to our, um, our guy who uh, stole the peanut cells. Apparently, he's uh, got a survival school going for himself now. Is that the same guy? Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. This right. is uh, this is from oh, yeah, that. Yeah. That's the guy. That's the guy. Right. right. I think that's him. <laughs> yeah, that, not too hard to pick this guy out of a lineup. Wow. So uh, you know, one one method of survival is to steal some peanut cells, right? Right. Um, I think he worked there. I think he was a custodian or a handyman or something. Well, crazy. So you you got assigned the story about Don and yeah. Well, no, I, don't know, I assigned it, but I, I I fleshed it out and assigned myself to it actually. Oh, okay. And and 
interviewed the guy on the phone. He was quite reluctant to do it. He didn't want to get involved with the press. He was very reluctant. So it made me even more pushy. Like <laughs> this guy was used to operating on his own. Like he didn't want anyone in his house or in his wheelhouse or in his office. He, he did not want to be involved with me. I'll tell you that much. But, you know, I, I kind of wormed my way into his world. And he was like a cop's cop, like a real you know how cops are. They're just really quiet. They're, you know, they're not, you know, not one of these bold, loud cops, but a real cop, a real detective. He had made detective. He'd been on the force. Um, I want to say 35 years by that time. Wow. Eric. He had been uh, the art cop, the art cop, the only one in the country for about 15 years when I interviewed him, I think it was in 2009. And he, um, finally agreed to let me interview him and i had to go downtown because you always have to go downtown no matter what you do in this city you got to go downtown so i went to the parker center which is he's on the floor with the detectives you know so it's he, mm -hmm. he showed me the photos of the hat squad hat squad um guys in the mm -hmm. 30s i mean he gave me you know a lot of information just to, it, he kind of loosened up after a while and we became friendly together. And uh, he started to tell me the crazy cases that he had been involved in, you know, counterfeiting and 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 um, not treasury counterfeiting, but counterfeiting of of art and pants and outfits and pants, you know, just like Gucci pants and just weird. Oh wow! You know what I mean? Anything that was designer, anything like you had to get on the case, you know. Hmm. Um, watches, you know, jewelry, you know, things like that, but. He was a good guy and he was looking to retire is where I'm going with this thing. At the when I come in in 2009, he's got 35 years on the force. You know what I mean? And sure. he's looking for an exit strategy. So he's starting to train someone to to replace him. And uh, he's training a, a a protege. What else can I tell you? And um I think I have a, a clip of her. I don't know if uh... <laughs> the, the protege was a very, very strange woman, Eric. Before, let me just explain the protege because I didn't know she was going to be there when I went to interview him. And I'm interviewing the two of them in interrogation room number one, which is off of the detective's uh, room, which is huge. But on the side is are these interrogation rooms. So I, they're very claustrophobic because it's got a big green table, but it's a tiny little room. And you got to sit on one side and they sit on the other side. And I guess, you know, maybe we've seen these in videos before. I don't know if there's ever been a video of anything in an interrogation room before. But I was interviewing him and he says, this is the woman who's going to replace me. So every time I ask him a question, the woman butts in and she looks like and sounds like and acts like and I don't even know what's going on, but she in all due respect, she seemed like a bipolar crazy person. And that was my first impression. And I said to her, because um, she wouldn't shut up. I, I said to her, do you know anything about art? So she says, I swear to God, she said, I know what hangs on the wall. And, <laughs> and I said, that's a weird answer. And then she said that she was taking um, art classes to learn how to paint. And I thought, why would you learn how to paint? Like Harisik had told me that he had taken art history classes at UCLA right. to learn art history, to learn about the difference between a Picasso and a, and, a, and a Chagall. But she was learning brush strokes 
and how to paint. And I, she said, she said, with all the actual quote, she said, hold on. She said, after seeing all the phony art, she told me, she said, I can do that. And I thought, what a weird thing to say to a reporter. And I thought to myself, is this woman like in training to become an art fraud painter? Like to, you know, go into the- Learn by doing. Yeah, I, I just filed it away in the back of my mind, Eric, that that was the weirdest thing I, I heard from an art detective is I'm gonna learn, you know, I thought how to become an art fraud painter, you know, and learn the brush strokes. It didn't make any sense, but, I didn't have time for that at that time. So she kept telling me she's got a daughter, she's doing this, she went to Europe, she said she went to Florence numerous times. And I went, how the hell do you go to, I mean, I've been to Florence once or twice, you know what I mean? <laughs> but when you're working nine to five as a detective, which is what she was, you know, she had 20 years in this woman at that time. How do you go to Florence multiple times? You know, she said she loved art, she went to Europe when she was 18. I said, okay, I could buy that. But then she said she kept going to Florence. And I thought, oh, that's weird. And I filed that away. You know what I mean? I, it just triggered some bullshit meter in my head that this chick is yanking my you know chain here about something. I, I really couldn't figure it out. But I remember one thing, and I put this in the article. She looked like Tyne Daly of Cagney and Lacey. I don't know if people remember Tyne Daly. But this woman looked like Tyne Daly from Cagney and Lacey. And I thought, what an odd-looking woman to be an art detective. Uh, Tyne Daly on a bender. You know, um, I mean, is, what's this all about? Well, it's relating to uh, his wife. Okay. Okay. Did you know her? Not really. I mean, I knew that he got married years ago. Uh-huh. Did you ever meet her? God, I don't know. Um... Do you know who she was or anything? Well, I... Let me think. God, it's been a long time ago. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, are you guys... Is this something... I mean, you said I was going to interview somebody about art, and how well, you guys are... Here's, here's, <laughs> I mean... Stephanie, here's the situation. It's basically, we... You know, we knew that this uh, when we saw this in the in in this chrono that maybe you know there was some relationship there. That's what the chrono seemed to indicate, and we didn't want to come up to you at your desk and ask those kinds of questions or do anything. You know how up there people can see what's going on if you go into an interview room or people are in there getting oh, that's supplies. Okay. Some of Sherry's friends said that you and her were having a problem <laughs> because of the John situation. <laughs> well. Number one, I don't know who her friends are, because um, again, I don't, I don't recall if he did tell me where he met her. Do you remember what he what he drove? Well, I know at one time he drove either a two forty or two sixty Z. Any other cars that stand out in your mind? Hmm. <laughs> Wow. Wow. Well, that's her. <laughs> that, this is a photo I took of her that day in, in, in 2009 when I was up in that room, in the interrogation room number one. Uh, Harisik's on her left, uh, her right, my left. And she was the same way that in that video as she was with me. I, it was unbelievable. Um, I, you know, she 
I, of course, I had no idea what she was involved in prior to this. I didn't even know who she was at this moment. But this is literally days before she's arrested by LAPD. She, in fact, leaves this interview with me, goes to Starbucks, gets a coffee with a swizzle stick in it, and they have a special unit, a surveillance unit. Now, Chief Bratton, who I also knew, and I interviewed uh, for the paper, Chief Bratton, who was a New York chief of police and LAPD chief of police, lived over here in Los Feliz, and I had interviewed him. Chief Bratton was hands-on overseeing this sensitive situation with her because she was an LAPD detective. She goes to Starbucks, gets a uh, coffee with a swizzle stick, throws it in the garbage after she's done. And this LAPD special surveillance unit scoops it out of the garbage in downtown L.A. And on there, they take her saliva and they match it to the DNA on that bite from 23 years prior and realize that she is the murderer of Sherry Rasmussen. And that's the final part of that. But I'm going to explain how that happened right now, if you want me to. Yeah, and that's, uh, by the way, Stephanie Lazarus. Stephanie Lazarus is the name of the woman uh, who is the murderer. Of Sherry, who's in this picture. Sherry, who was beautiful, six feet tall. And let me just give you the backstory on this. Because Stephanie Lazarus and John Rutan were lovers. They were lovers, and they, according to Rutan, yeah, there they are, according to Rutan, were just dating. And when asked how many times they had had sex while they were dating, he said just 20 to 30 times. So they said, well, you're obviously in a relationship with her. And they kind of break up, but they never really do. And he begins dating Sherry Rasmussen, and she's not happy about it. And she, even though Sherry Rasmussen becomes his fiance, Stephanie Lazarus does not want to leave the scene. And she comes up to the hospital where Sherry works. Look how pretty she is. Comes up to the hospital where Sherry works, um, which is Glendale Adventist, right over here in Glendale, and confronts her in a police uniform and says, if I can't have John, nobody can and gets into a fight with her at the hospital, and people notice this. And even as as her fiancé, uh, John Rutan, still continues to have sex with Stephanie Lazarus during the premarital uh, fiancé period with Sherry uh, uh, Rasmussen, which is, you know, keeping this thing alive. And when interviewed about it, Rutan said he wanted to get some closure by having sex with, ra- with, I, that's what he said. He's I, a male. I, you know, okay. He's a male. Yeah, I know. But I'm, <laughs> that's what he said. He wanted to get closure, you know? And anyway, make a long story short, she is not happy about this and comes to the house one day while John is at work again in police uniform, LAPD. She was a, a beat cop at that point in 1986 and confronts her in the house that they're living in the murder house. Um, it's very awkward for Sherry, who tells her not to come back. Uh, however, one particular morning on this day in 1986, um, which is February 24th, somebody comes into the house, and apparently what we now know is that it's Stephanie Lazarus who comes into that house, gets into a vicious fight with this super athletic, six-foot-tall Sherry Rasmussen, and the fight is a fight to the death going down the stairs of a duplex Uh, biting her on the arm, eventually taking this uh, blanket, this thick quilt 
and wrapping it around her 38 police revolver and shooting her three times in the chest with it. And she's still not dead. And, and, and she wrecks the place to make it look like a robbery. And she does that uh, to cover her trail and steals the BMW, but she steals only one item from the entire house. And that one item I've now learned was the marriage license between Rutan and Sherry Rasmussen. And that should have uh, that should have triggered the cops, but it didn't. The two cops could not believe that an LAPD officer would do this. So they went with this theory that it was these two Latino guys who were robbing and burglarizing the neighborhood. In fact, it looked like a burglary, but these burglars had never shot anyone and they've never stolen a marriage license and they never bit anyone. So when the criminalist shows up, this is, as I said, this is before DNA is even invented. The criminalist has a presence of mind to take the saliva from the bite wound and put it into a test tube. It's kept in a refrigerator for 20 years. That refrigerator is at the Parker Center with evidence in it. Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, it turns out that Stephanie Lazarus and her future, uh, or uh, let me just say another detective, another detective, sign the evidence out, the blood evidence of the evidence room it, early on, yeah, 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 in the early 2000s, make sure nobody's on her trail. She gets another male detective, to, and when he's confronted about it after the, the investigation, he says, I don't recall signing out the evidence, even though his signature is on the evidence form. She's now married to another detective and adopts a child, two and a half years old, and is living a normal life as a detective and about to take over the art theft detail where nobody would ever shoot be. Yeah, here they are, the two of them. It's another picture from the LA Weekly that we used in the weekly um, with some of their, their work. <laughs> so she wants to take over the art theft detail. Now keep in mind, the only two divisions she's worked in in 20 years in LAPD uh, were internal affairs and homicide. Internal affairs because she would be tipped off as to any investigation into herself and homicide because it was homicide. She takes her own gun after she murders uh, Sherry Rasmussen, goes to the pier in Santa Monica and throws it into the ocean, then goes into San Sa Santa Monica police and says her car was broken into and her police 38 uh, was stolen. So she has a record of her own gun, which is the murder weapon being stolen uh, by a car break-in, totally a, a lie, and she threw it into the Santa Monica Bay to destroy or get rid of the weapon. Um, she then goes about her business and this DNA disappears except the detective who signed it out left one test tube. And that test tube was the bite mark saliva DNA that ended up convicting her for murder of Shari Rasmussen. And he didn't know that that was part of the evidence, whoever signed it out. And as I said, Bratton, Chief Bratton told me that he handle this entire investigation because if they were wrong, they were going after the wrong detective of LAPD. And that would have been a complete debacle. Now, just to back up, the parents lived in Arizona and Tucson, and they believed it was her from day one. And they kept writing and calling uh, the chief of police back then, who was not as, as sharp as Bratton. This was Daryl Gates. And Daryl Gates was telling them to go F themselves, not responding, writing back, stop bothering me. In fact, the two detectives out of Van Nuys 
uh, when the parents visited them, told them they watched too much television, you know, forget about it and move on with their lives. They never moved on with their lives. They stayed on this case for 23 years. And Bratton said, I want them to be the first to know that she's been arrested and that we'll take her down. And Bratton had a cop fly all the way to Tucson, Arizona, to tell the parents that this was going to happen. He said, I don't want them hearing it on the media, on the news media. I want them for you guys to go there and tell them in person that we're about to take down the murder of their daughter, which is what they did. There were three cops involved in this, two cops. The, these are the guys who took them down. Yeah, I believe these are the two that people can watch in the interrogation. Right, right. And then there's yeah. a whole series of them. Right. Okay. So these two cops had five suspects, and they called her suspect number five. And they real, the reason they called her suspect number five was they believed that she couldn't possibly be in the top four. They had only five suspects. The top four, the top three, let me put it that way, were eliminated really quickly. Number four was eliminated next, and they, it could have gone with four or five. We went to check out four. This is a cold case. And the reason they were able to do these cold case investigations in 2009 was that Chief Bratton himself, with the help of his system that he invented, uh, was able to reduce crime so much in the city of L.A. that they now had the opportunity to go back and look at these cold case um, files. And this is what this branch was assigned to do as a cold case unit, was go back and look at these cold cases and clear them. So they get the, the, the Rasmussen case, and they begin to look at the five suspects. Number five on the list, who they called number five on purpose, so her name would never be, be leaked, was Stephanie Lazarus. And once they eliminated the first four, they said, well, look, she's number five, but we got DNA uh, you know, from a guy who bit the suspect. So they go to the criminalist, and the criminalist tells them the DNA is a woman. And they went, holy shit, the gender <laughs> of the biter was a woman. And then all hell broke loose internally because they had to go to their chief. They had to secretly go to the DA. They didn't want this leak. The DA gave them an office to work out of at a police headquarters so nobody would see them doing this. They had to talk to Chief Bratton, who gave them the authorization. They did not want to take her down with a gun in her house and they decided to bring her in to the same interrogation room where I interviewed her, which is right here, interrogation room number now one. That's because of policy. Because, well, yeah. That they can't bring a weapon into interrogation room. Exactly. So all three of them had to leave their weapons there, and they duped her into asking her about an art thief uh, that they had made up and said, we'd like to talk to you about an art thief who's in jail. And he claims to have stolen some art. We don't know anything about this. So she goes in there. They leave their guns uh, in the lockers and she's unarmed. And that's when you begin to see what was shown on 2020 was shown by the behavior panel uh, two months ago, Eric. Something like that. Right. And 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 what you see on the on the Internet, it started with me right here in this room interviewing her on that particular day at the end of um, April she was arrested, I want to say, a month and a half later, stood trial in June, and was sentenced to, I think, 20 to life, Eric? Was that the... 27 to life, I think. 27 to life. They were going to seek the death penalty. That was on the table. The death penalty was on the table. 
because of the burglary, they could have uh, gone, gone for the death penalty because of the burglary and the stealing of the BMW, um, even though she stole nothing else but the marriage certificate. And wait, it gets crazier. Just when you thought this story could not go on any crazier track, three years later in 1989, back in the day, John Rutten calls up LAPD and asks them if Stephanie Lazarus has been cleared of the murder of his wife, Shari Rasmussen. And they said yes, and they hook up again and begin another relationship three years after this woman murdered his wife. Unbeknownst to Rutan, according to everyone involved, Rutan did not know this. Here's it's another one little, for you. What's that? I've got another one for you that I found what? out. What? They let they her let retire. Her Oh, right, right, right. Well, <laughs> I, I think there was a certain logic to it because they didn't want to use LAPD money to pay for her defense. There was some there was some rationale mm. to that, that it would help her to use her pension and retirement um, or salary. I don't know. I guess they must have suspended her pension or something. But they they what they said publicly was that was done uh, as a bureaucratic means to cut off her money, if that makes any sense. I don't know. Uh, no, no. <laughs> I don't. Well, I don't know if she's living large in prison right now, but um, the fact of the matter is they were so careful because no one had ever remembered in their history having to prosecute an LAPD detective for murder. And they went back in the books. They looked in the history section. There was just no evidence of this. Um, but in the investigation, it was never resolved as to how she got the evidence out of there. You know what I mean? Like this guy denies remembering taking the evidence. Apparently, she must have had some allies. She was well liked. She had a completely clean record. She had a separate business um, in, in Van Nuys where she lived as a private detective where she helped parents oddly enough, collect the DNA and fingerprints of their children so they would not go missing. So oh, she yeah, had a yeah. side business uh, doing that, you know. Well-liked well folks. She was well-liked. Well and, and, and An angel face, face there. She never used uh, her weapon in 23 years. She had no disciplinary marks on her record, Eric. I mean, uh, that's, just, you know, she had a clean record as a cop for 23 years, a made detective, and was about to take over this art theft detail. And I believe, this is just my hunch, that she was training herself into how to do art forgery. And her plan was to take these actual paintings out of storage that were evidence, the actual paintings, and to replicate them, take the originals and sell them. As many of these cases had indicated, she was learning how to copy art. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. I, you know, that, that answer that she gave me a couple of times about learning and taking art classes just started my wheels turning. I think this nut was going to learn how to be the top internal art forgery person in the history of LAPD or the history of LA. I don't know how many art forgers are in LAPD, but I'll tell you this. When I first met her, this one thing came to mind was bipolar. And I don't know if she's ever been um, treated for bipolar. She does say to the cops at the end of the interrogation, I need my medication while they were handcuffing her. 
I need my medication for tomorrow morning, you know, to take, which, so she was on meds of some sort. It might have been, you know, uh, uh, bipolar meds as far as I know. Crazy. I am going to. Okay. I'm trying to get this echo taken care of again. All right. Hopefully that gets rid of it a little. We got to work out our sound issues next time, obviously. Okay. Oh, crazy story. So it's a little what's different. Next? What's next? What's what? next? <laughs> Was Wait, that oh. good enough? Wait, are we done with this? With the art to the detector? People, people are demanding. They want to know what's tomorrow. Well, I mean, if they have any questions about the art detective, I mean, they could put it in the comment section. I mean, a lot of people know this case because it was on 2020, but oh, Lazarus, yeah. they didn't know the backstory of Don Harisic. They didn't know the backstory of how I was involved in this. And um, I don't, maybe we could put the article up on uh, Locals, Eric, the, uh, no, yeah. the article I wrote for the weekly. Sure. Is that possible? Yeah. Okay, well, then they could read the article and they'll see there's, there's quotes from her in the article that are a little crazy. In fact, I was looking at some of the old articles last night and both the New York Times and the LA Times cite my article and, and, and me in, the, in their articles, which is kind yeah. of interesting. I didn't know that. I was looking at it last night. But uh, are you on Locals? Is that us? Yep. I'm oh, we see that. Locals okay. Yeah. okay, if you're not on Locals. Right. Okay, but you could subscribe to this channel, right, Eric, or no? Well, you can subscribe here. You can hit the like button. Right. You can follow us on Locals. Go on. You can send a PayPal. Right on. And I think I've just gotten a PayPal recently. It was very nice. Part A. Look at this. Yeah, I exactly. got to get those books. Please PayPal me. I don't care if it's five cents. I got to I gotta buy books on these subjects, these art subjects. Art books are very expensive. I have to buy art books. So please PayPal me. Um, tomorrow, we're going to do... A live thing or no? What are we doing tomorrow with with? It's, I believe, going to be live. And okay. And it is um, part eight. Of the story is so great that it never ends. Of Alec never Baldwin. Ends. Never ends. Okay, so Sabotage. we're going to do that about about Baldwin on Friday. We're going to do a special holiday edition. I think we're going to do the Moonies, uh, uh, the Unification Church, possibly or maybe I don't know if that'll be Friday or wind up next week. This is a great story. If you love the Moonies, if you love cults, again, somehow I'm in the middle of the story. So I'll just say, I don't tell any of these stories for shock value. Somehow I am in them and I am in the middle of this Mooney story. So uh, I told it to Eric, he doesn't believe a word I'm telling him, but I have documentation <laughs> as to this story. So maybe we'll do that Friday, but tomorrow definitely we're doing the Baldwin thing, right? Correct. Okay. Okay. So that'll be fun. And then that'll air tomorrow live. We're going to do that or? Yeah, I think same place, same channel. Everybody subscribe and tell your friends, steal their phones or borrow their phones gently, subscribe, right. and then give them the phone back. Oh, yeah. Why can't you subscribe <laughs> to the channel? What is wrong with these people? Can't they just subscribe to the channel, Eric, or no? There's... Anybody can. Wait a second. You're telling me that anybody watching this can subscribe to the channel and PayPal me money at the same time? They could do both? They can, and one okay. of them is free. <laughs> okay, so, but you could do both. You could send book money, and you could also subscribe. And yeah. join Locals for how much? How, do, how much does it's it cost? five you? bucks a month. So you're saying to me, for five bucks a month, you get this and extra content on Locals? Mm -hmm. That's outrageous. That's That really is outrageous. You know, well, uh, I'd recommend it. 
Great. And let's look forward to seeing everybody there.